We're delighted to welcome Michelle Barnier as our guest today. Mr Barnier was the EU's chief negotiator for both the withdrawal agreement and the agreement on the future relationship. This book gives an inside view of the EU side, the positions of the member states, relations between the EU institutions, thinking within the task force, and the perceptions of the UK and its negotiating strategy. Essential reading for anyone interested in the EU's approach to Brexit. It's a book about the negotiations, but also about building a team. Moreover, it's a very personal book. It offers the author's reflections viewed through his own history, family and professional life. It discusses the contribution of many individuals on the EU side, especially in the task force, and it gives pen portraits of politicians and civil servants on the EUK side. My Secret Brexit Diary, A Glorious Illusion, translated by Robin Mackay, is published by Polity Press. The first time a country leaves the EU, I hope it will be the last time that uh, we negotiate with a third country a trade agreement, not to delete the barriers, but to rebuild the barriers. My team, myself or my deputies, met this group of 27 Brexit delegates every week. And to be frank, we decided to, to do something very new and very unusual in Brussels, to say everything on every issue to everybody, at the same time. I don't know if I'm positive on Boris Johnson, my book. He has been always cordial with me. He was much more Baroque, and it was really difficult to work with him and with uh, David Frost. We have to tell the truth, and the truth is that uh, as far as the single market is concerned, there is no room, no place for any kind of cherry-picking or unraveling of the single market. Can we ask you, first of all, what led you to write the book? What is it that you felt was important to let people know? Jean-Claude Juncker asked me to, if I agree to be the negotiator, it was in July. Remember clearly it was a, during a meeting in Varsau uh, between NATO and the EU and the United States. Uh, President Obama was there, and we, we, I, I participated on the side of Jean-Claude Juncker and Donald Tusk to a private meeting with the President of the United States. And just be, before this meeting, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker asked me uh, if I agreed to be the negotiator, and immediately it was clearly yes. But uh, I thought uh, at that time, at that minute, that this negotiation, the negotiation will be uh, extraordinary, will be uh, historical. Uh, will be unique. It's the reason why I decided to to keep notes and to keep the memory of this negotiation every day. And I decided to to, to write. In your book, you reflect upon the reaction in the UK to um, to your appointment, um, and you're very you're very keen to emphasise in the book your great admiration for the UK. To note how your first um, vote um, in 1972 was cast in a referendum in France on UK accession, that you voted yes, um, despite the fact it was um, it was General de Gaulle, who was a hero of yours, um, that had twice imposed his um, veto on UK entry. You'd also had extensive interaction with the UK as a commissioner and, and French foreign minister. And I, and I wondered, against all that background, how surprised were you that the UK Prime Minister David Cameron decided to hold an in-out referendum and that UK voted um, to leave? Frankly speaking, I was not surprised. But the reaction in the UK press, in a part of the UK press to my uh, appointment, uh, when I used to be the commissioner in charge of the financial services, uh, um, I read in a, uh, one of the newspapers of the UK that I, 
I was the most dangerous man in Europe. So, so no surprise. But the, the choice of the EU negotiator was the choice of the EU, nobody else. It's clear that uh, I, I was surprised by uh, the condition of this referendum because uh, uh, I'm not sure that uh, uh, the Brexiters um, took the time to explain and to understand themselves uh, the consequences of the choice. It was clear that the, these consequences were not explained to the UK people, mm-hmm. the details in their truth. Coming back to my own conviction and my own involvement in politics, it's clear that uh, uh, I, I was I very, very young and, and I, I still am Gaullist, that means uh, uh, patriot and European. And to be frank, I think that that line, to be patriotic and European at the same time, could be the line in UK too, because our two countries, uh, two nations, are, have many, many things in common. And um, I was interested to, to, to see in your book that you referred to two quite different books um, or two different perspectives. Um, UK perspectives on, on the place of the UK in Europe. One is This Blessed Plot, which is a book by um, Hugo Young, um, which has quite a sort of pessimistic view of how um, the UK interacts with, with um, Europe and the European Union. And then Chris Patton, who sort of challenges a lot of the myths. Um, Chris Patton, himself a politician, a former governor, governor of New York and former commissioner. And I just wondered, did you recognise both or um, did you prefer one reading than, than the other? Did one strike you as... As, as truer in your experience? I have the chance to work with lots of high-level British leaders, including Chris Patton, both of us to the same commission, chaired by Romano Prodi. It was a privilege for me and perhaps for him to, to be around this table. Uh, I work with a lot of uh, very competent uh, high civil servants, the commission in particular, even as a uh, my own uh, director general uh, in, 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 in two, two, two situations as a commissioner for regional policy and uh, after as a commissioner for uh, financial services. I spoke a few minutes ago about the proximity, the ideological proximity between France and UK. Until a certain stage, we, 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 we add and we, we can have the same view about the European project, trading together. A EU project uh, which respects the national nation, national identities. Uh, I think this this line is common between UK and, and France until a certain stage, because uh, we think and we will continue to think that uh, the single market is much more than a free trade area, a global ecosystem with common rules, common standards, common regulations, common supervision common uh, jurisdiction, much more, much more than a, a free trade zone. We think, and we will continue to think, that the EU must be not only a place where we trade together, but also we, where we, we, we do politics together. And the EU has to be, in the global world, has to be a, a power, not only an economic policy, uh, but also a, a currency, but also a, a foreign policy, uh, common foreign policy and a common defence policy. Um, thanks very much for that. I'm just turning to think about the task force, which does occupy, um, as one might imagine, the, the main part of your book. 
Um, many have commented that it was a stroke of genius on the part of um, Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker to appoint you as head of the task force, that it was really advantageous to have an experienced European politician in that role, um, you know, especially given your sort of skill set. In the book, you say you accepted without hesitation, but I wondered um, what challenges you foresaw, particularly because this particular method was not um, didn't exist before. You had to invent it. I don't know if I'm an experienced uh, politician, but the, the, the reality that I had the chance and the privilege to belong to the commission two times as a commissioner uh, before, uh, I've been uh, several times in the council, even in the European Council on the side of Jacques Chirac as a French president or Romano Prodi uh, as uh, the president of the commission. And I've been elected to the European Parliament. So I, I, I knew, I know the three institutions. The, the main reason why Jean-Claude Juncker asked me to, to chair this negotiation, I prepared this negotiation very seriously. My duty was to negotiate, uh, to protect the interest of the 27 member states and also to to protect uh, the people of the 27 countries. I prepared this negotiation uh, studying carefully all the techniques of negotiations, uh, including the British techniques. And also I try as a very first stage to build the best possible team. And I, in my book, I refer many times to the, the, the quality, the competence, the high competence of the civil servants working with me, uh, 70 people, uh, 18 nationalities, uh, men and women, a very young team and very competent team. And to be to be frank, I think that the reason of this, not a success, because there is no success in the Brexit, but the, the, the reason why we, we, we finally achieved this negotiation in a, in, in a good way was clearly linked to the quality of this, uh, this, uh, this team. Uh, but you are right, there was no previous model. Huh? The first time a country leave, the EU, and I hope the last time, we negotiate with a third country, a trade agreement, a second agreement, not to delete the barriers, but to rebuild the barriers. And, and I, you, you spoke about being appointed um, by um, Jean-Claude Juncker in, in July. Of course, the, the European Council moved very, very quickly, um, informally at, at a meeting on in, in late June, um, to decide the four principles that would govern their approach to the Brexit question. And I wondered how those four principles inform the work of the task force and how you saw your role. The first uh, conclusions, the first uh, declaration of the EU European Council in June, a few days after the referendum, is, is and remain key for me because everything is written in this declaration of the European Council, uh, the method, the goal, the limit of the negotiations. All along the negotiation during four years, I, I my work was based on this very, very first uh, declaration of the European Council yeah, you, you mentioned, and the fact that uh, we were ready to, to negotiate in good faith, waiting first by, for the letter of, of the Prime Minister of the UK to launch the negotiation. And we, as you remember, we, we were obliged to wait for a long time, eh? from June until March uh, 17. And, and more than that, because just after sending this letter, Mrs. May decided to 
provoke new elections. So we, in fact, we, we, we were obliged to wait until June to begin the negotiation, a very long time. And the second point of this uh, European Council decision was to ask me to ask the negotiator um, to protect the integrity of the single market. No way for any kind of cherry picking to protect the full freedom. I repeat, the full freedom, not only one or two of them, including the freedom of movement for the peoples. Thank you. You did a tour of most national capitals in the summer and autumn of 2016, which you describe in the book. What was the purpose of those visits and what did you learn traveling around the European capitals? Jean-Claude Juncker asked me to be the, the negotiator of the commission, where the expertise, the people managing the politics that the UK one wanted to leave. But it was not uh, evident or automatic that the commission negotiator would become the negotiator of the, the other institutions. Mm. So the reason why I decided to make this tour to visit uh, each and every capital for the 27 capitals was to present myself to the head of states and the head of the governments and to, to get their trust, they, they, to, to get their support, to get their confidence. And it's exactly what happened thanks to this tour. Time I, I took at that time to listen, to understand the national concern, each and every national concern about the, about the Brexit and the consequence of Brexit was the, the reason of the, the trust of the 27 member states. And I became at the end of the year, seen very, very soon, very early, the negotiator of the 27 member states of the Commission and in the same time of the European Parliament. And it is, it is if, if I may say, it was at that time the, the, the key point for the EU side to have a single and permanent negotiator. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in that point. And, um, and what, what I was struck by in, in, in reading your book is that I think you say, you say a bit about the, the input that you made to the, um, the guidelines that the European Council developed at the beginning of 2017. You say less, uh, however, about the development of the system of governance that was created um, that linked the task force to the, um, to the, um, the Council and the European Council Special Working Group. And I, and I wondered if you had much, in, um, you know, and this whole system was announced in a um, statement to the European Council at the end of 2016. I wondered if you had any input into the design of that system or set of procedures and, and whether you felt constrained by it in any way. Any negotiation so serious and historical task uh, or issue that the country leaving the EU uh, required uh, any negotiation, uh, unity of view and uh, trust between the three institutions. It's the reason why I asked very soon to Jean-Claude Juncker to, to be able to use a very unusual, if I may say, uh, method in Brussels uh, for, such for such negotiation on trade, in particular, third country. And this method is transparency. Proposed to Jean-Claude Juncker, and I have to say that I, get, I got his, his support very, very early and very, very spontaneous support to be transparent. And more than that, with, with the, the, the public opinion of the, of, of the EU. So the reason why we, we built such a link between the European Council, the Council of Ministers, the Secretariat General of the Council, on one side, the Parliament on the other side, and the Commission. To be more pre precise, to me, the European Council 
put in place a group, 27 uh, Brexit delegates meeting at least once per week during four years. The same in European Parliament side with all the groups and my team, myself or my deputies, two key women at that time, at the first stage and also in the second stage, met this group of 27 Brexit delegates every week. And to be frank, we decided to to do something very new and very unusual in Brussels, to say everything on every issue to everybody at the same time. This is the reason, the, the main reason of the trust of the 27 member states and heads of states. Each and every prime, prime minister, each and every president receive every day or at least one per week a compte rendu, very precise, very clear at the stage of the negotiation. After a few months uh, of that kind of method, uh, they knew that uh, I was sincere. That's very interesting. In addition of this transparency, there are two other elements which are important. The, the, the second one is that I took part and I was invited. It was also exceptional and extraordinary to take part to the European Council on the invitation of Donald Tusk. And thanks to the confidence of Jean-Claude Juncker, I was on the side of the President of the Commission for each meeting of the European Council at the same table that the leaders speak about Brexit. And it is also one of the reasons of personal trust between the head of states, the, the EU leaders, and, 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 and myself. And the second reason, decided to visit each and every capital several times, one visit per week, meeting in his office or our office, uh, the prime minister of the country, the key minister of finance and foreign affairs, parliament, the national parliaments, trade unions, and the business community. Lots of work, personal involvement for myself and my team, but it, it was uh, necessary to build every day, every day, the unity and the trust uh, of the 27 member states. If I may now turn to the EU's approach to the negotiations, in the book, you express your admiration for UK civil servants, but are decidedly ambivalent about the politicians. You were very positive about the personal qualities of UK prime ministers. For example, you described Theresa May as a courageous leader, and you are also perhaps uh, more surprisingly positive about Boris Johnson. But you were less impressed by Europe ministers. Is that a fair comment? It's true that I had for Mrs. May great respect. She has been along this time uh, courageous, even with uh, many many people against her in her own majority. And the first of them was uh, Boris Johnson. I don't know if I'm positive on Boris Johnson, my book. He has been always cordial with me, used to be. Uh, he, he was much more baroque, if I may say. And it was really difficult to work with him and with uh, David Frost. Uh, speaking about the ministers in charge of negotiation, the UK negotiator officially were a minister. I have to say that I, I faced four ministers in four years. Mm. One per year. Mm. I had not enough time to be impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew quite well before... Yeah the Brexit to uh, David Davis, and I always have a good relation with him, uh, less uh, Dominic Rabb, uh, Steve Barclay, and and David Frost. We worked together during one year, but uh, I have been very disappointed, to be frank, by the fact that a few months after the signature, the ratification of the first treaty on Brexit, uh, the institutional political Brexit, the UK voice of David Frost and Boris Johnson decided to 
come back unilaterally on their own signature, which is, uh, for me, unbelievable coming from a, a great, uh, such a great country. Thank you. Thank you for that. In the book, you, you track the many twists and turns in the negotiations, including attempts by the UK to bypass you as negotiator and the divide and rule tactics directed at national capitals. Against the background of your past dealings with the UK government, as commissioner, for instance, uh, and as French foreign minister, and the UK's reputation for effective lobbying and communication, were you surprised by the UK's approach, or was it straight out of what you would call the UK's playbook? I've been uh, uh, surprised many times, uh, and for many reasons. The, the, the main reason of my surprise uh, has been and is still the fact that uh, all of the negotiations, and in particular during the last year with Johnson and David Frost, the pragmatism was on the side of the EU. I've been much more pragmatic than the the Britain these negotiations. And they they have been much more ideological, much more on a rhetoric method uh, than than the EU side. So uh, the the first uh, reason is this one. Um, I think they they made several mistakes. The first perhaps is to uh, behave as if they were still in the European Union and they were no longer in the European Union. We put on the table very clearly at the very, very beginning of the negotiation our conditions without any kind of aggressivity or spirit of revenge, but just to, to, for everybody to understand that uh, the UK will have to support himself, itself the, 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 the direct consequences of the Brexit because it was the choice of the UK to leave, not our choice. And uh, there, will, there will be no... Never, no, no way for any kind of cherry picking in the single market, or no way for any kind of uh, one upmanship. Uh, so it was clear: no aggressivity, a great respect on, from our side, no emotion, but uh, no way for any kind of uh, unraveling. Were there any moments where you thought that uh, no deal was possible, um, or even the most likely outcome? If I may just add one point. Uh, on the, the mistakes or what happened during the negotiation, uh, the UK tried to divide us. Uh, when I visit the capital in the EU, uh, UK minister just uh, leave just the day before I arrive, and the uh, British minister arrived the day after I, I leave. So, so it was clear that they tried to divide us, and to, but it was a losing time, losing time. Because the rule for us, the legal and the moral rule on the EU side was, and it was an obligation for us to be uh, unanimous at the end. Any temptation to divide us was losing time and even taking the risk to have a new deal. We were obliged to be uh, united at the end on the agreement. That is the reason why, let me just explain this point. Any national concern, the Irish concern about peace in Ireland, the concern of eight member states about fishing, uh, the concern of Spain about Gibraltar, and many other examples. Any national concern became necessarily the, the concern of the 27. Yes. Yes, I think that uh, I thought that uh, several times we, we, we had, we had to, to face uh, the risk of a no deal, huh? in particular uh, when Theresa May failed three times 
to get an, an agreement uh, of her own majority in, in the House of Commons in, in 1990. No? no, and that was seemed to be one of the few occasions where there was a, a real difference, a real spread of views about how the EU ought to respond um, in the face of the request for an extension. This moment of crisis or gravity between us, where we face the risk of a no deal around the table of the European Council. Sometime during a part of the night, there were many opinions. But finally, we, we find a way, a common way to, to say yes or no, or uh, to, to request for extension. It's a reason why I told you that we have been flexible on the EU side to, to give all the chances for this negotiation to, to, to be concluded by, in a positive way by an agreement. So the unity on the EU side in, um, after the referendum and throughout the negotiations surprised a lot of people. Um, looking back, I mean, what was the sternest test um, in your view? But the unity has been all along this process a, a daily task, once again, on my side. It, it was a, a clear condition for the 27 member states and the European Parliament to be uh, united and to to be able to, to say yes at the end to a proposal of agreement. And let me recall that we negotiate two, two treaties with the UK. Huh? The first about institutional and political Brexit, leaving the EU uh, with all the consequences of divorce. And number two, uh, the economic and trade uh, Brexit and the end for the UK to, to belong to the single market. So, so the unity was a daily task. And the reason why, thanks to this method of transparency, permanent and uh, weekly visit uh, in each and every member state, participation to the European Council, we, we, we succeed to, to build this unity, but it, it, it was not given by chance. In the wake of Brexit, there was a claim for the Barnier method, including the system of governance, uh, linking the institutions and the institutions and member governments, and calls for its wider development. Do you think the EU could make further use of the model? Once again, I think that I hope that the Brexit as a divorce will be unique, and I think it will be the case. But I think also that this method of transparency, unusual, once again, saying everything to everybody on every issue at the same time could be uh, used uh, in other circumstances. And for very important negotiation, I think it is a way to uh, maintain the 27 member states together. And uh, But it requests a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of sincerity, a lot of pro professionalism of this team of commission working for the the three institutions and I think uh, I think this method could be useful but I don't want to give any lessons. One of the striking features of let's call it the Barnier method was the the new approach to political communication um, and the one thing sort of uh, phrases like the clock is ticking um, you know the use of the press conferences to sort of communicate a narrative and you you talk about the origins of, of that um, of that phrase um, and then there were several others like it at particular moments of the negotiations I wondered if you thought there was a wider lesson to be learned by the EU from that in how it communicates with EU citizens this this sentence the cock is ticking has been used in a very specific circumstances by the Foreign Minister of UK Boris Johnson at the time, uh, 
the point was about a very serious task, a very serious issue, the financial bill, or as one of the main consequences of the, the divorce. It was no question for us to accept that what had been decided at 2028 20, will be paid at 27. So just ask uh, the reality of the, the bill to the UK to pay. And uh, Johnson said at that time, uh, go with him. Mm-hmm. You remember? Go with him. And uh, my answer was uh, during a press conference a few days after, don't hear anybody whistling. I just hear the clock ticking. It was my answer. But the, the communication for the EU side, thanks to my team, a very competent team once again, was to be uh, every day uh, sincere, direct, and simple. And I think it would be useful for the future also. Mm-hmm. One of our observations about your book is how, how generous you are about your staff, how important it was for you to build a team and how rare it is actually for somebody in, in public life to talk about this. Um, usually it's me, me, I did this, I did that. And, and it is one of the striking pictures of your book that you're very generous in, in oh, recognizing. No, no. I don't know I'm generous. I just wrote the, the truth of what has been all along the process, a collective work. Yes. It was so complex. We record that UK left 600, Indian, 600 international agreements, leaving the EU not only the EU, but also the single market and the custom union, so many consequences, social, technical, financial, political, economic consequences, generally underestimated by the UK side. It was so complex that uh, no, nothing could, be, could, be, could have been possible without a very competent, competent extraordinary team. And it's the reason why I spoke in, in that manner about this team and the persons belonging to this team in my book. It was just telling the truth. Thank you. Yeah, I I picked up on on the the sentence uh, la morale de l'action and uh, the idea that sympathy or being nice uh, amongst each other as in the team was also something important. It, it was not new for me when I uh, had the privilege to organize the Winter Olympics in my region in two thousand in nineteen ninety two with Jean Claude and eight thousand volunteers. When I used to be uh, four times as a French minister, when I was two times commissioner, every time uh, I tried to create this moral de l'action, that means that the, the people are kind of working together, are, are not coming from the same side, are some diversity of opinion, of personalities. For a certain time, they work together. And mm-hmm. they, they have to be proud to work together. Mm-hmm. They have to be proud and also to get the feeling that uh, each of them will have to to improve himself or herself uh, to be better working for a collective work task. So a lot of respect uh, for each and every member of this team. Looking back uh, at the negotiations and the current state of the UK-EU relations, it is often asked if the EU should have taken a more flexible approach. What is your view on this? Uh, once again, we have we have been flexible in this negotiation. We have been waiting for the, the British position, the, the, several times the British agreement of what we signed with the British government several times. So we, we have been flexible to find Finally, an agreement with the Irish protocol, which was one of the key issues of the negotiation, not the only one, but the, the most sensitive issue. 
we are ready to be flexible and to be pragmatic, but uh, the place where there will be, there have been, we have no, we add no flexibility and we will have in the future no flexibility, the, the, the single market. We have to tell the truth and the truth is that uh, as far as the single market is concerned, there is no uh, room, no place for any kind of cherry picking or unraveling of the single market. The single market is our main asset in the global world. There is no way, no, no possibility to, to accept any kind of cherry picking in the future. It was clear for the past, it is clear for today, and it will be, it, it will be clear for tomorrow. But we have many, many rooms and many other issues where we can build or rebuild new relations, and we, we need to, re, to build new relations for the UK. My regret during the election was that uh, particular Bridgerton decided to refuse to open a, a chapter of the negotiation on security, defense, and cooperation, despite the fact that he, he, he agreed on what we remember we called the political declaration. We agreed to open such a chapter, and finally he refused. But we, we have the possibility now to, to open a negotiation and to have a, a new uh, EU-UK treaty on, on, the, on security, defense, and cooperation in Africa in particular, I think it will be the common interest to, to do that. And so there is a lot of uh, issue where we need, we must be together to face the global challenges. Clearly the case for the climate change is the, cl- the case for the poverty in Africa and many migration it will provoke. It will, it's the case for the fight against terrorism, also the way to be independent to keep a kind of autonomy vis-à-vis the financial services in the world or big companies in, a, in an internet and so on. So, so we have to we have so many fields where we need to be together. One, one of the commitments that the, um, the European Council made in June 2016 was to do the more to address the reasons behind Brexit and more broadly the rise of European um, of Eurosceptic populism. I wondered if you thought the EU has lived up to that promise. This point is key because uh, the Brexit didn't happen by, by chance. There is many reasons to explain the Brexit. And uh, on the EU side, we must have no uh, short memory because we, we face the same reasons in many regions and many countries of the EU today. It's too late to draw the lesson for the, on the UK side, but it's not too late on our side. And many of these reasons are linked to what I can call uh, the, the social anger in many regions about uh, uh, the, the feeling to be abandoned by the EU, not to be protected by the EU, uh, to have uh, to face uh, uncontrolled migrations, to have no future, no industry, no longer industry. So we, we have to be very careful. And I think that the, on the EU side, uh, for the last uh, four or five years, we in really, we, we, we have begun to, to, to draw the lessons. If you look at what we have decided in our trade relations to be less naive, if you look at what we have decided to protect and to control the external border, creating 10,000 new jobs to control the borders, if you look at what we have decided to, to do for the very first time to launch industrial policy, uh, if you look at what we have decided for the very first time to, to borrow together after the COVID crisis, to borrow together 750 billion euros and invest together in the 
sector of the future. Uh, I think that the proof is is on the table. We can give the proof that we have begun to we have begun to understand and to answer and to address the concern of the people. But it's not the end, and we have to continue. Moving on, then. So you you refer to your Gaullist roots and philosophy throughout the book. Did your experience of negotiating Brexit make you think differently about the EU? what it means to be a patriot and a European? I didn't change my view and my feeling about the EU. Since the very beginning of my political involvement when I was 15, as a young Gaullist, and even a few years after when I decided to, to fight for the yes accession of UK, Ireland, Norway, and Denmark 1973, for the French referendum on the accession of these four countries, uh, I always try to keep the line uh, to be patriotic and European. That means that for for me and for many of us, the EU is not a, will not be a federal state. It's not about a, a unique people, a unique nation, a single state. There, there were uh, twenty eight nations, twenty seven today, twenty four national languages. This is the reason why the EU is so complex. The management of the EU is so complex, to be frank, because managing 28, 27 today nations, respecting the national diversity, the national identities, and working together, pulling many of our politics just to be strong, just to be respected by the other global power in the world, uh, cannot be simple. And uh, my regret is that uh, in the UK side, as sometimes in the French side, the, the leaders uh, did not take the time to explain, to assume uh, the, the, the consequences of this uh, complexity, the price to pay to be united and never uniform. I'm looking forward uh, now. You visited the UK several times since the uh, negotiations were concluded. You've done many talks and media interviews. I wondered, do you get a sense that things have changed in the public debate um, in the UK? Or is there a better understanding of the EU? Or is it the same? No, it's not the same. Because uh, there is much less arrogance on the Brexit side, the Brexiter side. I have this question to to Mr. Farage when he uh, asked me to for a meeting in my office as a negotiator. And he, he was unable to give me any pro- any proof of the added value of the Brexit. Is it's the same situation today. I can see the Brexit is still in the headlines in, in your country, in the UK. It is, it is not the case in, in the US side. Uh, for us, uh, the, the Brexit is in, in the books, huh, if I may say. And we are using our energy, our intelligence, our capacity to, to, to build the future of the EU, not to, to speak about the past. Huh? Some commentators have been uh, surprised by the stance you took following the Brexit negotiations when you went back into French politics. Do you think there was any contradiction or tension with your approach to Brexit? No, no, certainly not. We are not speaking with the same points. The point I mentioned during my bidding for the presidential election in France, in my party, the primary, was about how to control the migration coming from a third country, Africa or Middle East and so on. It is totally different than what at stake during the campaign of the referendum about the 
the freedom of movement inside the EU, I will never put into question the, the, the freedom of movement inside the EU, which is one of the four indivisible freedom of the single market. So we are not speaking about the same point. I still think that we have to, to put in place uh, for human reason, but also for, for political reason, we have to put in place uh, new rules in Europe and in France to, to have a better control of the migration coming from the third country. You've said on a number of occasions that the door to the UK rejoining is always open, but presumably that be that would be by the Article 49 route and the UK couldn't conceivably expect to obtain the opt-outs it previously enjoyed. Do you think that's, do you think, is, that, is that your reading of the situation? It's true that uh, any country which wants to join, to rejoin uh, the EU will have to, to go through the Article 49. And uh, the UK knows quite well the terms and conditions. But once again, I repeat that the door is open. It has been the choice of the UK people, majority of the UK people to, to leave. It will be the choice of the UK people to, to choose uh, uh, what kind of link of relation uh, the UK will have in the future with the EU. Uh, I don't want to comment on this point. It will be a sovereign choice of the UK people, but the door is open and uh, on the terms and conditions of the EU. We've already touched on this a bit, but uh, you know, you pointed to the importance of future cooperation between the EU on issues such as migration, on the environment, on climate, on counter-terrorism. And we can add to this defence and foreign policy. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about the form that that should take. The legal form of a treaty. We have uh, negotiated and signed and ratified uh, two treaties. The first one of the divorce, and the second one of the future relation and, and the, the, com- the trade relations. If we want to add a chapter for the new relation between EU and UK on security and defense, and I think it will be necessary, the common interest or cooperation in Africa, we will have to negotiate a new treaty. It will be the legal form. Mm. Okay, interesting. Mm. Finally, the title of your book in French, La Grande Illusion, it alludes both to Jean Renoir and Norman Angel. Could you explain what you intended by the title and whether you think the illusion is any closer to being dispelled in the UK and more widely? The title of my book has no direct link with the film, the famous film of Jean Renoir or the the famous book, uh, The Beginning of Last Century of Norman Angel. But it is the same title. I choose this title because I think uh, Brexit is a, a great illusion. The false promise uh, the Brexiters to the UK people, uh, you can be uh, stronger being alone. It's an illusion in the global world. We cannot be stronger alone b- because we have not the, enough size, and enough population, enough strength, enough resources to be to be to be respected in the global world by the other great powers: China, United States, Russia, and the other India. Uh, together to create enough capacity to be respected. So it is a a great illusion of the Brexit. Uh, There is, to be frank, another illusion uh, I want to mention on our side. The illusion that uh, a situation, a political situation, which seems improbable, uh, will never happen. Or, Or the Brexit is a proof that something improbable can happen. 
I want to thank you for talking about your book. It's a great, for me, it was a great journey to navigate that complexity. Thank you, Mr. Barnier. Thank you thank very you. much for your attention, your invitation. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you again. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Goodbye. Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.